and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. On this week's episode, has your smartphone been running a bit hot? You might be surprised to find out why. We're going to speak with an expert at the firm Wandera about the emergence of cryptojacking schemes in which mobile devices are being hijacked to mine cryptocurrencies. Also this week, recent congressional hearings weighed the question of how we can be uniquely identified online when almost all of our personal data has been stolen or shared with the world. We invited Alan Brill of the firm Kroll back into the Security Ledger studio to talk about the future of identity in a post-breach world. But first, the ride-sharing firm Uber has a well-earned reputation as a visionary and innovative technology company and also as a well-funded startup with a pension for hubris and boneheaded management. Those later qualities were certainly on display in recent weeks as the company revealed that it withheld information on a hack involving the theft of some 57 million users and hundreds of thousands of drivers, and that it had paid a Florida man responsible for the hack $100,000 to keep knowledge of his actions private. In our first segment this week, we're going to speak with Katie Masouris, the founder of Luta Security and a pioneer in the creation of bug bounty programs at Microsoft and later the firm Hacker One. I started out by asking Katie about Uber's Florida man problem and what she thought about the company's decision to call their payment to him a bounty. I'm Katie Masouris, founder and CEO of Luta Security. Katie, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. So the, the news about Uber and the data breach at Uber has been news for, for a few weeks now. What we learned this week is, first of all, there's a Florida man angle in the story. and <laughs> <laughs> That was not lost on me either. A Florida man. Yeah. <laughs> and second of all, that the company, among its many misdeeds whitewashed what seems to most people like a ransom and sort of dressed it up like a bounty. So as somebody who really pioneered bug bounty programs, I thought good to reach out to you and get your thoughts on this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, number one, um, the question of how to do a bug bounty or even how to do a vulnerability disclosure program when you have Basically, PII or other protected classes of data, you know, like healthcare data, et cetera, on the other end has been a question that's come up over and over again over the last several years. But the Department of Justice this past July just released guidelines on how to structure a vulnerability reporting policy if you are a vendor um, who wants to stand up one of these programs to basically give guidance, you know, here's how you phrase things around access to PII data such that you're being very clear and you're trying to provide, you know, essentially guidelines for, you know, no fly zones for the potential bug finders, bug hunters. And what we saw in the Uber case was, you know, certainly there was, there was no real language in the policy that basically said, you know, it's okay if you want to download 57 million records, just tell us about it and we'll pay you a bug bounty um, as long as you delete it. There's nothing in there like that because that would be unreasonable. You know, that's unreasonable to say, you know, to the hacking community, go ahead and download, you know, our customers or our drivers' private data and that's going to be eligible for a bug bounty. So clearly from the get-go, something something was was terribly wrong with this, with this idea. Um, what I liked about their handling of the situation was, you know, from, from the public reports, it seems like this Florida man 
um, this, you know, this, this person who had, who had done this thing, they, in their judgment, you know, decided that they weren't going to pursue civil uh, legal action against him under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And I think, generally speaking, that's a good move from, from organizations when they kind of deem, deem somebody not a threat and they decide not to go after them and they decide to work something else out. But what they did next, you know, which is have him sign an NDA, supposedly have him delete the data, and then ask him not to speak of it so that they could avoid notifying the people whose data was stolen, that is the part that, you know, basically takes a turn for the sour very quickly. And that's where, you know, I think I think it's corrupted the idea of bug bounties, you know, in a lot of ways, the their use of that. So I you know, happy to to dig deeper in that, you know, if you if you yeah. want. Well, I mean, when you look at, and again, we only know what happened here by way of, you know, re- great reporting on the on the incident itself. Um, from what I understand, you know, there were some there were some uh, developer credentials exposed via a, a GitHub repository. Those were used to kind of move laterally and access other uh, cloud-based systems that I think on Amazon that contained uh, the sensitive data. Um, I mean, I guess that. That is a security lapse, but is it the type of thing typically um, that would be, you know, for example, um, actually accidentally leaking uh, credentials in a um, public or even private GitHub repository uh, that would be covered by a bounty program? Is that the type of thing that companies would typically be paying people to find for them? You know, it can. It can be among the things that you put in scope. Going back to the the Department of Justice guidelines, they are basically saying, think about this sensitive data. Think about, you know, what you're protecting and effectively, you know, think through how you're going to ask bug hunters to treat that data. So, you know, the DOJ guidelines offer some options and some suggestions such as, you know, basically say something in your, your vulnerability program scope or your bug bounty scope that says, you know, avoid accessing other people's private information whenever possible. Um, use test accounts whenever possible. So you're already kind of steering them towards stay away from the PII that we're entrusted to, to, to keep. And then further saying, if you do encounter, you know, uh, some PII, uh, basically uh, just avoid further accessing of that data, like stop at that point. And then, you know, in the case where some of that data might be required as proof of concept, you don't want to break additional laws by transferring that data again. So DOJ guidelines even suggest an option that says, why don't you put it in your or in your bounty guidelines, your vulnerable disclosure guidelines, to have the proof of concept uh, have a screen capture instead of an additional transfer of that data. So DOJ is, has really done a lot of, you know, obviously thought through this for, for quite some time and have, are trying to work with the vendor and the hacker community and the government space uh, community that have embraced bug bounties and trying to make sure that, you know, even when what I call accidents, even when accidents happen, um, that, that you already defined a way to deal with it and you're minimizing harm to the people whose data you're entrusted to protect. And that's, you know, that's something that, yes, you can put a bug bounty together that touches PII, but you have to think through how you're going to ask the hacker to dispose of it and how you're going to, you know, guide them towards uh, uh, opportunities where they don't have to, to compromise PII in order to prove the vulnerability. And I, I would think as well, I mean, we're, we're here in December, uh, in May of 2018, the 
EU's general data protection rule is going to take effect there, and and it's going to uh, certainly impact many U.S. companies. Um, that has some pretty serious penalties around um, lost data uh, for data um, um, for for companies that are um, you know data owners, and uh, there's a lot of focus on protecting data flows. So my guess is. Uh, having production data in a bounty uh, in, in systems that are open to a bounty would be a, a major exposure for companies if they're not careful. Am I right? Yeah, and you know that's that's absolutely true. And certainly, doing you know basically spinning up test instances of cloud apps that mirror your your live production apps and saying to bounty hunters or bone disclosure, you know. Uh, Good Samaritans to please point your research at the, you know, essentially at the test instance. That's one way to deal with it, absolutely, and that's certainly advice I've given to organizations for 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 whom that actually works. But when you take a step back and let's just take Azure for example, you're not going to spin up for the Azure bug bounty. You're not going to spin up a whole separate instance of of the Azure fabric. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to be able to do that for everything right, in every right, case. Right. But yeah, but yeah, there is, you know, there is an opportunity there to, to just think through, can we, you know, do we already have sort of a test lab that we should think about, you know, either publicly exposing for the purposes of vulnerability disclosure or bug bounties, or is it something we're maybe comfortable, um, you know, putting in, in some area where we ask, you know, people to apply for access to this test environment? You know, there's a number of different ways you can do it and still protect that PII, but there's, there's also a scale point at which, you know, running it against a test instance actually doesn't scale. And, and you know, we encountered this as professional pen testers back in the day, too. Some environments, you can ask for a test instance and therefore protect all, all the sensitive data. Uh, in some environments, you just couldn't because it was a scale issue. You know, you've worked with many companies, Microsoft, HackerOne. I mean, if you were advising Uber on the right way to handle or respond to this particular incident, um, what do you think you would have told them? Yeah, I mean, I would have told them that, look, you know, it's up to your judgment if you want to spare, you know, the, the civil liability rod of the of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act on this person. That's that's definitely up to you. If you feel like that's the right way to go, I definitely encourage, you know, people to avoid taking legal action against well-meaning hackers. But if they felt like doing that and they felt even if they felt like paying out the money, they could have very easily also complied with breach notification laws. You know, they could have literally said, okay, you got us. Here's here's a bunch of money, um, but we do have to go ahead and, and disclose that this, this breach happened. And FYI, you know, we're not going to pursue civil uh, action against you. Um, but just know that because we have to do this breach notification by law, you know, you may be federally prosecuted and it's not exactly up to us. And of course, you know, we're not going to refer you to legal, uh, to, to law enforcement, but we are going to, you know, do what our duty is and notify all those folks. So, right. I mean, they could have done both is what I'm saying. And they just, you know, they chose this path that was very clearly, uh, you know, designed to, to hide this. That I think was their, their ultimate fatal flaw. I mean, one of the things that strikes me that is problematic about this is one of the big hurdles to launching or getting bug bounty programs accepted to begin with or to get the work of vulnerability researchers accepted was that 
company's initial reaction to vulnerability researchers was, oh, you're trying to extort us. You're coming to us with this report about a vulnerability. You must want money from us because otherwise, why would you be doing this, right? And when you talk to vulnerability researchers, you run into the story all the time. And <laughs> this, in some ways, kind of gets us back to that, right? Where, you know, we're talking about it in the context of a bounty, but in reality, it was this guy kind of going to them and saying, hey, you know, you want me to keep quiet about it, pay, pay up. Put it this way, um, not knowing what was going on in the heads of the, you know, basically the the executives who made the decision um, on doing it this way at Uber, um, not knowing what was in their heads, knowing what was happening at the time, you know, they were already in a situation where they were um, negotiating, you know, with the FTC about a different breach that had happened earlier where a driver's licenses had been compromised. And it seemed very much like, look, yes, this guy was extorting them. And yes, they were open to essentially the payoff because it was in their interest to not add to what they were already dealing with with the FTC. So again, this is speculation on my part, but it just seems like, you know, it, they could have made they could have made so many different choices. The the bottom line choice was the was the one not to disclose to the affected users and drivers, you know, the PII. And I think that's what, you know, obviously they're getting flack for. But I'm also, you know, <laughs> I'm also professionally offended that bug bounties have been dragged into this. You know what I mean? It's like, look, you know, bug bounties can be very useful and everything. And I know it's it's they're definitely not for everybody. You know, they're not a universal panacea, but for companies with responsive security teams and, you know, driven capacity and proven capacity to actually fix the bugs in a reasonable time frame, I mean, it's a useful tool. And it's caused a lot of people, you know, to take pause, but not pause for the right reasons, which is, you know, are we doing all the things we can to eliminate as many bugs as possible? That's a pause for the right reason. But they're now taking pause for the wrong reasons, kind of looking at it like, oh, yeah, you know what, actually, uh, we don't we don't want to expose, we don't want to encourage, you know, the the. the the stealing of any of our, our customers' data, and we don't want you know people right. getting ideas that if we put right. up a bug bounty program, that we'll just pay them off you know for this. So I think it's causing pause and it's tainting what what good bug bounties are you know in an unfavorable way right now, and it's it's annoying me. Frankly, I'm annoyed. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I can I can hear that, <laughs> and also kind of ex- obscuring the idea that you know there are parameters in bug bounties. It's not like once you declare a bug bounty, it's open season on your entire organization and its infrastructure, right? I mean, the, the other story this week, well, there are a couple stories this week regarding DJI, the Chinese drone manufacturer, um, but they were in the news this week for some um, friction that arose over uh, reports of vulnerabilities in some of their software um, by a couple really pretty well-known vulnerability researchers. And the company's somewhat prickly response to those disclosures, even though they had launched a public bounty program. Yeah, and that one that one is where I feel like there's there's a really big difference in Uber's actions and DJI's actions. So in Uber's case, um, you know, they were running a decent bug bounty program and whatnot and they, they were doing a good job of fixing the vulnerabilities. And then this happened and they did, you know, sort of took a turn for the cover up. And then whereas DJI, um, I think probably catching the bug bounty wave or catching bug bounty fever decided that, hey, we're gonna start a bug bounty, but they didn't quite think it all through. So clearly they didn't think through 
all of the, the terms and conditions that they would prefer hackers to sign up for. It, you know, if they wanted to be eligible for those bounties, they were negotiating that after they did the launch. So they didn't prep up front. And then they also very, you know, this is a very common problem. They also were kind of confusing a bug bounty program with what they were used to in the past, which is a penetration test. And that right. is something where, you know, there's an expectation of an NDA. There's an expectation of, you know, that, that there's a customer, you know, involved, not a vendor who you've, you know, literally done free work for and are turning over this issue. So they, I think they just got confused and they just didn't prepare and they didn't think it through because they're falling for this, this seduction right now um, around bug bounties, thinking they're super simple and all you need to do is just slap a front door up there and dangle some cash and hope for the best, you know? I guess it's worth explaining. I mean, it seems straightforward enough, but how should companies think about bounties versus the traditional hire some consultants come in here and hack our software stuff you've done yourself in your in your career and then tell us what they find, of course, under a non-disclosure. We were chit-chatting before the official official start of this, but also having watched the industry, um, you know, of security testing evolve over the last 20 years, um, personally being involved in, in some of it early on, I can see some of the same confusions coming around with bug bounties as were the original, you know, sort of pen test uh, professionalization of the service um, that was happening around the late 90s, early 2000. But yeah, I mean, to, to sort of describe it, I, I usually describe it like along a, a spectrum, right? So the the most efficient way to find vulnerabilities ideally is to find them yourselves internally, your own internal penetration testing, your own internal testing even before, you know, the uh, code is completely written, all of that secure development lifecycle stuff. That's that's the most efficient. It's the lowest risk, right? Because it's ideally your own employees. And then there's the bring in professional pen testers from the outside. And that gives you, uh, you know, maybe another set of eyes or so. Um, it also gives you people who specialize in finding bugs. So that's, you know, specialty if you didn't have that capability in-house. Um, or you had limited capability. And it also brings that comfort of having it all under non-disclosure. Um, then you get into sort of the hybrid space. So the hybrid space would be some of these ones where they offer sort of as a bug bounty, but as pre-vetted, you know, pre-vetted people with certain skill sets, pre-vetted folks with certain clearance levels and things like that. And mm -hmm. that to me is that model is nothing more than just being uh, you know, an agency to place penetration testers, like independent pen testers It's almost like a, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, um, uh, like a, um, what do you call it? Like a temp job, you know, mm -hmm. type of, of, of organization, but that's still very close to professional pen testing. And then you get into the, you know, the broader vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty landscape where, You've got, um, you know, you've got it open to the public or a, a big portion of the public. Um, you know, you might have some restrictions, but, you know, there's no explicit NDA. There, there are things saying, you know, where they, that you would ask that they not disclose these things. Um, and then there's, and then there's stuff like the Microsoft, the original Microsoft bug bounties, which I'm now beginning to see are, are quite unusual in that uh, they were willing to pay out a lot of money, six-figure money, with no NDA and no ownership of the intellectual property of what yeah. comes in, um, just simply a license to use it. I know that's changed, you know, because I think 
what happens, you know, when, a, when, when someone who's, who's sort of a visionary of why, you know, we're doing things the way that they are leaves after a while, the institutional knowledge, you know, kind of seeps out. But really the reason behind that was that, that vulnerability disclosure of certain skill sets, um, it's still pretty much voluntary, whether you're paying money for it or not. If you are soliciting for this type of work to be done and you're not paying up front, uh, under contract, under NDA, then you've really got no rights, you know, to be uh, to be expecting that they'll come forward for a relatively small amount compared to what they could get on, you know, what what's called the black market or or the offense market, if that makes sense. So I guess what's changed is it just that you know, kind of as often happens, the lawyers get involved, or is it that um, vulnerability researchers have become more profit-driven and less idealistic, so they're willing to, you know, sign off on their work, never becoming publicly disclosed. Or is this just a, you know, aging, maturing of the bug bounty market? Well, if it's if it's aging and maturing towards all non-disclosure agreements, then quite frankly, it's aging and maturing uh, backwards. You know, it's going back into the the pen testing space. You know, because essentially, it's just another type of pen test because you're setting up a contract with these folks. Um, I think that, you know, I think it's, it's partly, it's just that lawyers don't know um, how to understand the, the risk outcomes of having a heavy hand legally, right? Lawyer's going to law, hacker's going to hack, lawyer's going to law, vendor's going to vend. And, you know, of course, it's a lawyer's job to protect the company that they work for. And they tend to do that, you know, in a number of ways involving scary legal language. That's what they do. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, it's kind of through the looking glass. The lawyers have to accept the fact that the reason these programs even exist is because you're trying to mitigate security risk, not necessarily, you know, brand risk and all of the things that lawyers care about um, in terms of protecting a company. So, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a little bit of a regression of the philosophy of, of what vulnerable disclosure is really about in this overly legalese landscape. Um, but there's also an opportunity here to, to sort of redefine some things and set, set some things straight. Um, and I think there's not only opportunity to do that for vendors who are trying to set up their own programs, but also for the bug bounty companies, you know, to, to really declare, um, declare themselves to be, fair, but also, you know, <laughs> their services, they should be willing to go out there and say something like, hey, by the way, uh, can't can't use our services to pay for any illegal activity, just FYI, right. you know, right. Um, right. and just put that out there. I think I think that would be that would be a good use of the lawyers right now is to make that positive declaration saying, please don't use us to pay extortion money or shouldn't have to articulate that. But in light of recent events, maybe you should. With DJI, I know you and I have spoken and, and others as well about the stages of maturity with bounty programs and, you know, that there's kind of a problem walk, run phase with bounty programs. I wonder, is this an example maybe of a company who jumped into a full-fledged public bounty program uh, where maybe it would have been wise to take it more slowly and incrementally uh, before sort of throwing the doors open? Well, yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, again, going back to that that uh, Department of Justice guideline set, not only um, is the guideline there to, to help vendors, you know, craft these craft appropriate um, bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure scopes, but they're basically designed to help the hackers. Um, you know, if a vendor base has, has followed these guidelines and set clear expectations 
um, you know, then the hacker has a reasonable, you know, reasonable shot at even if, you know, a third party brings legal action, like not the vendor. If the vendor says, you know, if you follow these rules, we will not bring a legal action against you. Um, but DOJ's guidance actually even says they actually incorporate those guidelines from the Department of Justice. They're making their intentions to the bug hunters clear. They're basically saying, hey, we don't want to go after you legally, so please follow these rules. And also, we can't protect you from a third party going after you, but we will stick up for you if you follow these rules. That's really what that's saying. And, you know, it's actually modeled after some of the work that we had done, um, you know, Charlie Snyder over, uh, he had formerly been at the Pentagon, the Office of Secretary of Defense, um, doing policy. He, you know, he and, and Leonard Bailey from the Department of Justice, and I provided review on the ongoing vulnerable disclosure policy of the Pentagon, which actually includes those stipulations. It basically says, if you follow these rules, we're not going to bring legal action against you, but if a third party does, then we'll, we'll make it clear that you followed our rules. It's not, you know, a complete umbrella, but it's, you know, it's, it's reassuring. And I think it's from, straight from the Department of Justice, that's what you should include. I think every vulnerable disclosure program and bug bounty program scope should include something like that. Okay, so your company, Luda Security, you basically advise organizations, governments, large organizations, companies about creating vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs. Um, you're a good person to ask. I mean, what do you see from your, you know, you, you've got boots on the ground. Um, what what trends do you see in both the um, acceptance, embrace of vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty programs and also the conditions that companies are putting on them? Well, I think certainly the... Um the trend up until the Uber, you know, confusion payment um, happened was that I think a lot of organizations were becoming almost too cavalier, like DJI, too cavalier about running out and starting a bug bounty program, thinking that it's very, very simple to kind of cookie cutter, um, try and cut and paste what, what they're seeing out there online mm -hmm. and not realizing that they actually have to, they have to do a lot more sort of internal maturity work, like with the legal team, for example, and, you know, it, with the business risk owners, if they haven't fully comprehended um, that the, you know, that this is a fundamental shift in how they receive vulnerabilities from the outside. Um, so the trend before the, the Uber bounty seemed to be people were, were being quite cavalier. The trend now are people steering away from, from the idea of doing a bug bounty because um, they're concerned about, you know, about PII and how they can protect it under those circumstances and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're, you know, we're at a, we're at a turning point. Ideally, it's an opportunity point for clarification around, you know, what is, what is all this really for? It's not just to jump on a trend. It's ideally to get better at security, right? And, you know, from the vendor side or the government side and for the hackers, Ideally, this should be a time when, you know, their work is not only embraced, but rewarded in a lot of cases and not always with money, you know, certain things you can't buy with money, certain, certain, um, you know, special non-monetary incentives are still 
very, very powerful motivators, you know, especially for the Good Samaritan hackers who aren't interested in selling to the highest bidder. They actually want to see the bug get fixed. You see a real inflection with this with this Uber incident. You don't think this is just a, an outlier that's going to you know fade off? Do you think this this could have some lasting damage potentially? I think it could have lasting damage in the adoption of good bounty programs. You know, that's that's really the that's that's the potential harm from you know other organizations. Um, I think the the upside could be, you know, an opportunity for everyone to pick up and take notice who didn't notice the DOJ guidelines to go ahead and notice them now, you know, <laughs> go ahead and notice them and follow them, you know, and, and rewrite your programs to make sure you're considering the data, you know, basically the, the PII and the sensitive data elements to it much more carefully. Um, and then, I, I don't know, in terms of the DJI thing, it, it does make me sad because every time there is an event where, you know, a hacker is who's coming forward in good faith is legally threatened. Um, every time that happens, it places another chilling effect on hackers worldwide in wanting to even come forward for, for money or no money. They see it as, you know, essentially it's just another bit of evidence that, that vendors can't be trusted. And so that I feel like, you know, we're, we were gaining a lot of ground there. And, and that I think um, is another blow to the the trust building that's been going on over the past 30 years between hackers and vendors. I wonder, because you work around the world, are there cultural factors that can play into how these programs are understood or executed? It's more about cultural things about what kind of company are you or what kind of organization are you? Are you basically a, you know, a technology company or Mm -hmm. a recent born on the internet company? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have a ton of technical debt? Or is your business mostly online? Or do you build like a product that, you know, go installed on people's devices, you know? Right. So it's less, it's, it's less, you know, uh, geographical and more around uh, the culture around doing these programs is vastly different from, let's say, you know, Facebook, which, you know, the philosophy is go fast and break things. So, of course, you know, introducing a bug bounty program seems seems like great fun and it's been working great for them. Um, whereas a Microsoft is in that other camp um, where they basically had this huge portfolio, technical debt, you know, app compat issues, and they're not a primarily online company. They have, you know, essentially stuff that has to go out and, you know, potentially they could cause harm to, to people's computers and people's devices if they mess it up. So they have much lower risk tolerance for dealing with the uncertainty of vulnerability disclosure. Um, and they're just a very different profile culturally than, you know, a GitHub or a Facebook or like or a Google even, you know. So that's where the cultural differences and, and the attitudes really come come into uh, bearing. Katie Masouris, founder of Luta Security, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with us at the Security Ledger podcast. Yeah, good time. Thank you for having me. Up next, with the price of a single Bitcoin hovering around $16,000, there's a crypto gold rush on to mine Bitcoin and a range of other cryptocurrencies using whatever means necessary. Increasingly, that includes illegal mining operations that leverage networks of hacked computers. In this week's podcast, we speak with Dan Cutiford of the firm Wandera about the increasing use of mobile devices as part of illegal cryptojacking schemes involving compromised websites and unwitting mobile phone owners. Dan Cutterford, Director of Engineering. So yeah, so Wondera is a mobile threat defense company. Uh, businesses 
use our solution to help secure their mobile devices. So you have some really interesting data that you're sharing around crypto jacking. And this is kind of computers, mobile devices being harnessed for use mining cryptocurrencies. And the jacking part is without really the owner's permission or or knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are legitimate use cases of using a mobile phone and other devices to mine for somebody else in, in a sense of micropayment and so on. But we're seeing no consent being given and these devices being used to mine a whole manner of what are known as alternative coins out there. But often they're pegged to Bitcoin and hence they're able to get some monetary value out of these coins. Uh, all kinds of people are mining cryptocurrency. I read one article about some some folks up in a northern climate who are heating their house with the heat from cryptocurrency yeah. mining rigs that they had set up. So it's a legitimate activity, but this is happening sometimes surreptitiously. And um, traditionally, we've thought about it with you know more powerful devices, uh, desktop and laptop computers, cloud-based systems. When do we start seeing mobile devices being uh, looped into these cryptocurrency mining operations? Yeah, I mean, that's quite an interesting phenomenon on on um, cryptocurrency in that the more popular a coin gets, the more efficiency goes into the mining of that coin. And so we saw it with Bitcoin you know, many years back, you could mine some Bitcoins on your computer and well, well done if you did that. But these days you have to develop, you know, you're an ASICs platform and have um, warehouses to do that. But some of the alternative coins now have been developed to defeat the ASICs process. So you have to have either a GPU or a CPU to mine um, these currencies. And again, efficiencies are being put into the um, mining process. So often the limiting factor is the cost of electricity, which is why, as you said, if you're having to pay for electric heat anyway, why not generate that heat mining some, um, some cryptocurrency? You know, the laws of thermodynamics are the same effect. So you're, you're still generating the same amount of heat per kilowatt hour as you do it. Um, what's quite interesting on the mobile side is on average in the US and the life cycle of a, a legacy device or a laptop or a desktop is just under five years. But the life cycle of a mobile device is just under two years, which means that the mobile device that we have in our pocket is, generally speaking, far more powerful than the laptop or the desktop you might be using. Um, and, you know, that sort of follows Moore's law and so on. But what doesn't follow Moore's laws, unfortunately for us, is the battery life. So there's only so much lithium ion you can squeeze into a certain space and get so much power out of it. And I think we've all noticed that as mobile devices become more and more powerful, unfortunately for us, the battery consumption, you know, there are some efficiencies being pushed in new phones these days, but the battery consumption has, uh, has risen and the life has gone down. And so, you know, the, the core, the CPU on these mobile devices are very powerful and they're very attractive to, to somebody who would want to use it to mine these cryptocurrencies. So they're not actually sacrificing much by doing it on mobile devices. The challenge, obviously, is how do you get on the mobile device? I guess that's where CoinHive comes in. Talk just a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so CoinHive um, is an interesting concept. That they What they've done is they're one of the first people to to package one of the mining operations down into JavaScript. So they made it really completely portable. Um, before CoinHive, you would have to uh, compile a, a specific mining operation. And generally, that was reserved to Windows or, or Linux machines and so on. But CoinHive uh, put it inside the browser and made it completely portable across um, different platforms. So the legitimate uses of CoinHive are you know, micropayment, having people support your website, you know, maybe we'll do away with some of the aggressive advertising and pop-up banner ads that we get on some websites. And in a sense, you would donate 
some of your CPU time and hence a very small amount of your battery or your um, electric bill onto, um, onto that website or third party. Where it goes wrong is where consent isn't given or where websites are being compromised. And so the injection of just uh, one or two lines of JavaScript into a website is enough to compromise that entire website. And from the hacker point of view, they don't have to worry about the platform they're targeting. Normally when they're compromising websites, they're looking at doing a drive-by download and they might have an exploit that works on Windows, but only certain platforms are Windows. They might have an exploit that works on some Android, but not Samsung's as an example. But with JavaScript here and CoinHive, it doesn't matter. As long as it's rendering JavaScript, that exploit is going to run and you're going to be lining the pockets of the hacker anytime you're looking at one of these web pages that has been infected. So you've seen a 287% jump just in the last month of mobile devices connecting to these crypto jacking sites or using apps that have this um, crypto jacking uh, script included in them. What explains that big jump in activity? And these are by and large corporate devices that uh, we're talking about, corporate, you know, mobile devices that are uh, connecting to corporate networks as well, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a large uptick and there's a few reasons that could be. I mean, the CoinHive specific example is used to mine a currency or an alternative coin known as Monero, and that is um, heavily pegged to Bitcoin. So every time you hear in the news that Bitcoin has gone up another 10% or something like that, it's, that's another 10% of reasons why someone would want to go and mine Monero and convert it into Bitcoin and ultimately convert it into US dollars or any other fiat currency out there. And another reason is because this mining activity can't be patched. You know, it's, it's an exploit that is completely portable across any user agent, across any device that supports JavaScript. And um, there's nothing really that the browser community or the um, operating system community has done to uh, address this at the moment. So is this a security risk? I mean, it, it's unauthorized activity. We're going to talk in a second about, you know, the effect that it has on mobile devices. But in and of itself, is it a security risk? I think a lot of people are on the fence about it. I think that what, generally speaking, what's happening is web resources are being compromised and hacked, and this is being injected in there. So in that sense, yes, that is a security risk. Um, you're, you're not even... Um, aiding the website owner. It's the third party that's, that's gaining it. So it might be an indication of, uh, of lack security or a compromised website if one of these scripts is running on it. doesn't mean it's the only malicious activity emanating from that site. Yeah. And then what if there's intent? Well, what if there was intent by the third party website and they still didn't tell you about it? You know, maybe there'll be a law in the future like there is in the EU with cookies about having to disclose this information. There isn't at the moment today. But what does that mean to the business or to the end user? Well, from my experience, you know, aside from CPU performance and pixel density and LTE speed, there's just one thing we care more about on mobile devices, and that's battery life. And businesses are concerned when devices are being utilized in such a manner that they, they, they can't do their job with their mobile device. And that could be someone streaming too much YouTube, so they ran out of data when they're abroad, or downloading too many games, so they ran out of space to, to download other corporate applications. But in this case, if the device is off because it's run out of battery because a website was compromised, then that's it. There's, there's no point in having all the best um, business applications on that device and all the best connectivity that the battery is just gone. So, so you know, it, it, we're on the fence in terms of, is this malware? It's, it's something new. It's something that um, 
you know, it, ultimately it's stealing. It's stealing from the end user. It's stealing uh, milliamp hours from the um, battery for their gain. Uh, how would you know if your uh, mobile device had gone to one of these websites that is running one of these crypto jacking scripts? What indication would you have of that activity that on your device? Yeah, it's pretty difficult on a mobile device. Um, on legacy devices, on desktops and laptops, you can have a CPU monitor running, and a lot of people do, and uh, you'll probably have a fan as well. And the moment you visit one of these sites, you'll see your CPU spike on all the cores, and you'll hear your, your fan go on. You'll, you'll know something's up. Um, on, on a mobile device, uh, you don't have those things. You also don't have a cursor that you can move around the screen and realize, like, why is it jittering all over the place? And so aside from the lack of performance on the device, after two to three minutes, you'll notice your device getting very hot, especially at the back of the device. Um, some devices, you'll be lucky enough that the browser will crash on you. Um, other devices, unfortunately, it won't crash and it will continue to deplete your battery life. Um, from some of the tests that we've done, um, a, a, a fully charged battery will be completely depleted in just under one hour. Um, my test, my benchmark is my iPhone 7. It loses roughly 1% of battery life per minute when visiting one of these websites that, that's running at 100% and all the cores are running on it. So wow. you're looking at two hours and your device is completely gone. Without the, the, the device is doing nothing else. It's not rendering any video, any audio. The only thing it's doing is mining and um, less than two hours and it's gone. You, you guys said that you saw temperatures rise as high as 52 centigrade uh, on, these, uh, on these devices, about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I mean, in, on some of these devices, they, they have a, a kill switch, actually, where they will turn off if they get too hot. Um, and so, you know, potentially we'll see some of these uh, malicious scripts throttling back slightly to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, it's noticeably hot. After just two to three minutes, it's uncomfortable to hold a phone in your <laughs> hand um, if it's running full pelt. But, again, maybe these malicious actors will get a bit smarter and they'll, they'll peg it back to 50%. And 50%, you're going to get still a drain on the battery that's significant, but maybe you won't no notice as much in holding it in your hand that the temperature's gone up. Is there any other way, um, aside from those kind of gross observations of, you know, it's hot, uh, it's, you know, um, batteries draining quickly, uh, to know if one of these is running um, uh, utilities or tools that might help you uh, see the activity of the uh, crypto jacking script? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the majority of this is taking place within the browser and um, mobile devices don't break out as they do on um, desktops and laptops, how the different um, tabs are running in there. Um, what you can do is go into your settings and have a look at your battery usage. And uh, if you do see a spike in battery usage in Safari or Chrome or whatever your mobile device is using, then that's an indication that um, mining is going on or you're visiting a website that is, isn't optim optimized very well anyway. So even if they're not mining, um, there's something uh, untoward going on there. And uh, is the solution just to kill the browser? Uh, yeah, you can um, kill the tab uh, within the browser as well. Yeah. I mean, we've seen some different cases of backgrounding of this. Um, sometimes on iOS devices, they do a better job or, or sometimes it's annoying depending on what you're doing of um, pending background state for applications and even the browser. So you're, you're a bit more safe on an iOS device if you don't kill the browser, but just background it. 
on Android devices, again, depending on the browser you're using, unfortunately, sometimes the background process will continue. So even if you press the home screen and go and do something else, if you haven't killed that tab, it can continue to run in the background on an Android device. And you guys found around 1% of, uh, you sampled 100,000 devices, corporate devices, and found about 1% of them had the, some kind of crypto jacking script running on it. What types of um, sites are, tend to have this, uh, the, have these compromises? I mean, where, where are people going that they might run across one of these things? Are these the sort of uh, dark alleys of the internet, or could it really be any site? Uh, it, it, it can be anywhere. I mean, maybe the long tail, and as you said, the dark alleys has a few, but um, based on the research that we did, we weren't really concentrating on, on that side of things too much. Um, we were seeing this on well-known compromised websites, but we were also seeing this intended use on um, streaming websites. So if you think about it, if I go to a resource that's streaming, uh, maybe illegal streaming going on there, um, so I'm sort of willing to go to a domain that maybe I wouldn't be going to otherwise as an end user. And I'm getting eyes on screen as well. If I'm streaming a video, I might expect my device to go hot as well. And I might expect my CPU to go down. Uh-huh. Um, and I might not really think about it, you know, if I was taking a train journey and I go, huh, that's odd. My phone only managed to do an hour of streaming of this video. Um, so that's where we've seen a lot of the usage here within the browser and on resources that um, demand that you you leave that tab open. Yeah. Um, so it's in my very, background. Very clever. They're kind of hiding behind that activity, and uh, it's going to get the, 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 the mining is going to get lost behind what they assume is just the, uh, the streaming. Yeah, exactly. It's very difficult to, to track down. I mean, even as an expert user, if you're in a web browser um, on a desktop, you can just view source, dig around, find some JavaScript in there. To do the same on a mobile device requires USB cables and debugging. It's a very complicated process to really work out what's going on on a web page on a mobile device. I mean, what's interesting about this is, you know, I mean, and I've been covering cyber for a long time, you know, mobile devices, you know, in recent memory have been more or less immune from a lot of the um, common illnesses, endemic problems of, you know, legacy devices like laptops and so on. Um you know, we haven't seen as much malware and so on on mobile platforms. It seems now like uh, that that land bridge really is being crossed. We're seeing a lot more uh, malicious activity uh, starting to target mobile platforms, whether that's uh, bots uh, or, you know, cryptocurrency miners or, you know, uh, those types of things. Yeah, they'll find a way exactly that. I mean, what we're finding is in some corporations, they're not even arming um their, their workforce with um, desktops or laptops. They're just giving them mobile devices, iPads, iPhones, and so on. And so malicious actors, are, they're, they're looking to find a way in. It's, you know, it's almost like uh, bacteria or something like that or a virus. If you don't kill them all, they'll just rise up and go against something else. So the user behavior doesn't really change, unfortunately. They're still able to fish users for credentials. They're still able to get users to install third-party applications that haven't gone through an app store. Uh, and in this case, the crypto jacking, they're still able to get users to go to links to watch videos that they think they're getting for free or something like that and ultimately um, damage that, that device um, from what it was intended to be used for. Anything that companies can do to inoculate themselves or their employees against these types of attacks? Well, at the moment, it's 
it's pretty difficult to, um, as we were talking about, to diagnose exactly what's happening on the device when it comes down to browser-based threats. Uh, I know that the, the browser community and that's the community of uh, Microsoft Edge and Firefox and Chrome and Safari are looking at methods of building something into the browser to help protect users for this type of attack. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of other attacks, such as uh, spear phishing that goes on on mobile devices. You know, you receive a text message and it says you have to reset your password to Salesforce or your um, Gmail. You tap on it and then it's very difficult on a mobile device to understand the, the address bar is so small. You know, where, where am I really entering these credentials? So a lot of organizations are looking at implementing um, filtering solutions and security solutions, very similar to what they've had for a number of years on-prem. They wouldn't dream of just putting a Windows machine on the network and not having some type of gateway that it would go through before accessing the raw internet. And, and that's what a lot of businesses are looking at doing now. The last couple of weeks have been a crazy time in terms of cryptocurrencies, right? And um, there's a lot of speculation going on there. And I am no better or no worse than the next man to tell you where that's going to go. But what often happens on these, uh, on these blockchains is that there are, there are pools of, um, of miners out there ready to jump around different cryptocurrencies to whatever is most profitable. So even if the currency values fall, um, the difficulty in mining will fall as well. And so you end up with a pretty static um, value of what one CPU can get you in terms of dollar amount. So even if the Bitcoin value goes up another 100% over the next couple of weeks, you might see a bit more of a flood going towards uh, mining these alternative coins, but also the difficulty goes up and, you know, they might mine half as many and it works the other way around. If the value of Bitcoin drops in half, the difficulty can go down and they might mine twice as much. So you know, we've got to bear that in mind as well, that, um, that there's efficiencies going on in markets all over the place and cryptocurrency is no different. Dan Cutterford of Wandera, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to the Security Ledger podcast. We really enjoyed having you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And finally, experts testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee this month warned that the wealth of stolen and willingly shared personal data floating around the Internet makes traditional knowledge-based authentication schemes vulnerable to trivial hacks. But what will replace knowledge-based authentication? In our last segment, Alan Brill of the firm Kroll says that while there are ways to prolong the usefulness of some knowledge-based authentication, the future lies with biometric and device-based authentication that includes facial and voice recognition technology coupled with big data analysis that will give companies ever more reliable measures of identifying individuals. My name is Alan Brill. I'm Senior Managing Director at Kroll in our cybersecurity and investigations practice. One of the conclusions, I guess, from this hearing, identity verification in a post-breach world that, that took place, this is a House Committee on Energy and Commerce hearing, was really that, again, the combination of stolen data and willingly shared data is bringing quickly to a close the days of knowledge-based authentication. Um, do, do you think that that's true? And do you see that happening? Yeah, Paul, I really think it is. But I think there are things that people can do to lengthen its life. It, you know, it's very easy to fall into the trap of giving an answer that can be validated through social network that may be available for sale on the dark net, but we can go beyond those. 
and and that can be helped. There's a difference between fact-checking and challenge response. It's a challenge, and you give a response. And as long as you give the response that they're expecting, they don't care if it's true or not. But I think ultimately that that as time goes along, the pure use of what we you know think of as a traditional password will be recognized as, as not sufficient for most things. And what's going to replace it? I mean, we've seen um, certainly Apple uh, embrace first thumbprint or fingerprint biometrics with Touch ID and now with their latest phones moving to facial recognition, although not without some uh, bumps <laughs> in the road. Is that the direction? As did fingerprint ID when they first came out. As did fingerprint ID. But I think, you know, it's like I, I think about it and really I, I'm using that Touch ID every day to authenticate to different things, uh, my blog and other things. Um, you know, that's new. I mean, uh, uh, thumbprint biometrics have been around a long time, but have not caught on in that kind of way. But now I think about it and I, I use it every day. Uh, I wonder, is the same going to happen with facial scanning and facial recognition? You know, give it a couple of years. And is that direction you see companies moving, um, looking to biometric authentication? Well, certainly, you know, biometric is the most hyped kid on the block. But as a security person, I worry. Not so much that uh, if I put my finger on the sensor or my hand on the vein reader or whatever, that it won't recognize me, but that what's really being done there is that whatever the whatever your physical characteristic is, it's being measured either by a fingerprint reader or by the camera, and ultimately it has to be turned into something that can be stored, whether that's a, uh, a vector that, that represents your fingerprint or something else. The problem comes in that you have to answer the question, why is that less stealable? If I can end up with a way to present the right data, whether that data originates as a fingerprint or a picture or anything else, to a system, can that biometric be stolen? And the reason I worry about it so much is that if you called me up and said, hey, Alan, um, the um, password you used to get onto my blog, well, it was a hack and you got to change it. I'd say, fine, I'll change it. But if somebody says uh, your fingerprint was stolen, I can't change that. And I only have 10 fingerprints that I can use. So potential value of the loss of a biometric identifier because it's compromised has incredibly greater risk. It has infinitely greater risk than, you know, a password being compromised or, or losing a security key. Well, one of the things I think about is that when we talk about the device we carry in our pocket, uh, and we think of it as a phone, but of course it's not a phone, right? It's a computer that has the capability of transmitting voice messages in duplex. It's a really powerful computer these days. And we just carry these things around. So its ability to do things like generate one-time codes ask questions and and interpret answers is something that is in its infancy. When you think back, when I was at NASA, 
one of the most popular shows on television, at least for me and my colleagues at NASA, was the first run of Star Trek. Shows you how long ago it was. And, you know, there was a thing where the captain would say, computer, and the computer would do its thing and tell him the answer. And that was science fiction. And now there's Alexa. And who, when I said her name, just turned on the uh, device. Um, <laughs> that never happened in uh, Star Trek, by the way. They, <laughs> somehow they... <laughs> no. And the computer never said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that. Like, I'm not talking Captain to you. Cook Shut up. Said, <laughs> yeah. All the things we do with like Alexa. And... You know, I can ask for a news briefing. If I want to know the weather, I'm going to ask for the weather. This ability to deal with natural language seems to me to be another way that we can look at authentication, right? Because if you have this device in your house and if it is somehow authenticated to you and authenticated appropriately to some central repository, the fact that you're asking for something through the device may be an out-of-channel way of authenticating a request that you're making online. Sure. You know, as in, you know, uh, computer tell the bank that I really am asking for a hundred bucks. Um, and you know, the bank now gets that through another channel that it came from you. They checked your voice print, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, I think the, the, um, the things that we're seeing to me fall represent opportunity. And how that opportunity gets implemented, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm interested in the future, but I can't necessarily predict it with any level of accuracy. But I think, you know, things like, I'll whisper her name so she doesn't start up Alexa uh, or Siri or anybody, that kind of artificial intelligence, when you start thinking of it in terms of part of an identification authentication infrastructure starts to represent a whole new category of capability. One of the issues that came up in the hearing was the you know, lack of a comprehensive federal data privacy, data breach law. That's made it very difficult to standardize what the right response is to breaches around disclosure and how much to disclose and how to disclose it. And I wonder how much of this problem of data breaches do you think is the result of just not having very clear federal guidance on uh, data protection and data breach disclosure? But what I see is that that um, when it comes to doing the notifications, the general principle that seems to be uh, being followed is if you have to notify for one, notify for all. And, you know, when you look at states like California, where, uh, you know, I think uh, the evolution of their uh, rules and their views on data security um, under uh, their now senator, former attorney general, you know, has made them one of the most sophisticated states in this. And in New York, certainly, uh, and Massachusetts are right in there. Um, I think, I think what you point out is the danger is the danger. And that is that, 
um, you select a, regime, a regime that is not the strictest and that, that leaves too many loopholes um, and, and doesn't encourage the kinds of behavior that will protect consumers. Uh, that being said, when you start looking at uh, legislating anything to do with technology, you have to start out with a certain premise. And that is that what you and I have been talking about today, how one identifies oneself to a network, to a computer, the technology, I think most people would would agree, seems to advance at, at like the speed of light. But law advances at the speed of Congress or the speed of a legislature, which isn't quite the same thing. So we want to make sure that when we're drafting potential legislation, that we're not locking ourselves and our organizations into things that aren't going to make sense in the future. So I think, you know, one of the things I, I suggest to people is you want the laws to be as technology agnostic as possible. You know, we want notification, we want notification promptly and efficiently, but, you know, how we're going to get to the point of, of what we know technologically, that's something that that has to be left, I think, to technical evolution and to the fact that in data security, um, virtually never do we run into a one-size-fits-all uh, policy. So, uh, you know, I agree, uh, as you say, that there is the danger that you um, you choose a weaker law and you have a federal uh, exemption, an override of any state laws so they can't be made uh, more strict. Um, but the reality is that even though there are, you know, 40 whatever state uh, district and territory laws, and that those differ not only in when you notify, but who in the government you have to notify, and the, the actual form that the notification takes, organizations have learned to deal with it, and to deal with it very effectively. So it's not like the system doesn't work. It may not be hugely convenient. It may be more strict in some states than some would like. But uh, I see our data breach teams um, being able to very effectively deal with the issue, get the notifications out, run the call centers, uh, provide feedback uh, and assistance to those victimized by. Uh, these frauds and these these data thefts. So you have to ask the question: um, What if the system is working? What's the advantage in going to any new law? And will that law protect both the rights of companies and the rights of individuals in an appropriate way? I mean, one of the issues that seems to be debated is this issue of you know, disclosure and, and harm. So some companies want the law to say, and this would be a federal law, 
uh, unless you can prove that the data that was stolen was used to actually cause harm to a consumer, then um, you know we shouldn't have to disclose uh, that breach. Um, you know, others, obviously, privacy advocates say that that sets a very high bar because it's very hard to prove that a specific piece of stolen data was you know connected to a specific incident of identity theft or fraud or something like that. Any sense on where are you with that and uh, maybe where are your customers with that? When we talk about harm, the real problem is is how do you define that, right? Um, is it that you lost money? Is it that um, private information about you was out there? Uh, is it that you had to take 50 hours to um, to remediate things that happened? Again, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think sometimes about the way that, that we approach recalls of uh, dangers in cars. Um, you don't have to have a specific body count of people who were killed or injured to justify a recall. The fact that that you have identified a problem that has a potential for causing that harm can be enough to trigger the recall. And, and I wonder whether there's a value in looking at this problem that you and I are discussing in a similar way. You know, where is the point at which the likelihood of harm, again, defining that in a fairly broad way um, becomes a reasonable, a reasonable thing to worry about. I wish I had the answers. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Um, so I don't, you know, purport to be an expert in the law, but, you know, am I glad that uh, a recall of a car can happen because the fuel line could separate and and you know make the car burst into flame yeah i don't i don't need you know uh to have enough examples before i do that um and and i think if if those drafting and looking at those laws use that kind of analysis and say when when does the risk become uh, a reasonable one uh that um should be attended to, I think we start to get closer to the answer. Alan Brill of Kroll, thank you so much for coming back on and talking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great having you. Always great to speak to you, Paul, and I hope you and, and the audience have a great holiday season. Same to you. Thanks so much. 